Good morning. If you got your Bibles, will you open up with me 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 is our text this morning. Again, we'd love to see you June 25th for our baptisms as a way to support those being baptized. We just ask that you would join us for lunch. Hopefully that works out so we have a food truck. We're working on that, so we want to be able to just hang out afterwards, have a great time of fellowship, and uh, be able to support those who are publicly displaying their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but here's our text this morning. Finally making our way through chapter 2. It'll be good to get into chapter 3 next week. But hear God's word. Peter writes this, starting in verse 10. says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, speaking of the false teachers, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They blaspheme uh, about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They, they, they are blots and uh, are, are blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, they entice unsteady souls. They, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are the waterless springs and the mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. For if, after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first one. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. And the sow about washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Very exciting passage right there. Well, in John Grisham's The Rainmaker, John Grisham introduces us to this rookie lawyer played by Matt Damon by the name of Rudy Baylor. Watch the movie. Rudy Baylor is in, in, kind of dives into the deep end of law at his first case. He goes against this large insurance company. And the lawyer on the other side is a a man by the name of Leo F. Drummond. If you watch this movie, you know Leo has some immoral tactics, 
So much so that when Matt Damon does his first dip- deposition, he, he shows up and he's longing to, to, to kind of interview these two witnesses, but Leo already had them quit or resign or get fired before this deposition so they couldn't be able to be a witness in the case. As you're watching this go down, you're watching Matt Damon get angry. His anger is beginning to rise, and eventually he leans over the table. He says, I've been wondering something. Leo Drummond says, what? What are you wondering? Matt Damon replies, I've been wondering, do you even remember when you first sold out? Great tragedy of this lawyer, he probably didn't. He crossed over that moral line so often that that moral line began to disappear. Like a line in a baseball diamond, the more you cross over, the chalk disappears. And this is what this man had did. He's so many times kind of leading into immorality. He, that line underneath him began to disappear in which it began, it began to be his new normal. He lived in immoral tactics. It's who he actually became. But as I think of this lawyer, my mind immediately goes to the false teachers that Peter is dealing with. Imagine one of them coming up to these false teachers and again leaning over the table and asking these false teachers, do do you even remember the first time you sold out? Do you even remember when you, you moved away from orthodoxy into heresy? Do you even remember when you moved away from holiness into blatant sin? And again, the great tragedy is these false teachers probably didn't remember. It became so routine for them that now they're publicly sinning. They crossed over that line so often that that line began to disappear. So much so that now they were inviting others to join them in their sin. But this morning what I want us to do is I I want us to see what, what, what were the motives for these false teachers? What was underneath the covers that was moving them to sin blatantly and be so arrogant. Peter really tells us in our passage this morning, he's going to show us three things that kind of moved these false teachers into sin. It was their pride, it was their lust, and it was their greed. And I want to look at these three things this morning, and I know it's not necessarily a fun passage to look at pride and look at lust and look at greed, But I believe this passage is going to serve like preventative medicine for us. I don't know if you take preventative medicine. Sometimes it doesn't taste well going down, but it serves to keep you well. When I was a child, I'd take cod liver oil and came in this blue little bottle. And and they tried to taint it this lemon flavor, but it's incredibly hard to cover over fish oil. Fish oil eventually comes out and it really doesn't taste good going down. But the whole purpose is to keep you well. Well, this is the cod liver oil passage of the scriptures. But as we look at this passage, I do believe, hopefully, that it will be able to keep us well as we pursue holiness. That we would avoid these false teachers. And you, as you notice the great warning that Peter is giving us, he uses harsh language. He, he calls these, these, these false teachers, he calls them children, not adults. He calls them children that are actually accursed. He calls them wild animals that deserve to be captured. And then he says actually to be killed after they're captured. Incredibly strong words. But why is he 
so strong in his language. Because he knows the destruction these false teachers are bringing. That here's a group of individuals who are teaching falsehood about Jesus, and not only falsehood about Jesus, but now joining and having others join them in their blatant sin. And they're leading people away from Jesus and away from eternity in heaven. And because of that, Peter uses such strong language to warn us. Don't go after people who are swaying you away from holiness and who Jesus is. So this morning again, we're going to look at these false teachers' motives, the the pride that they had, the the lust that they had. And then we're going to look at their greed. And then we're going to begin to wonder how many have actually been swayed away from Jesus because of their pride, because of their lust, because of their greed. And hopefully we'll allow this passage to serve as a warning for us. Yes, it might not taste good going down, but it will serve to, to serve to keep us well in this life. First thing we notice is their pride. These false teachers are marked with great pride, and they're very blatant with their pride. Look at what again it says in verse 10 through 13. Again, he just spoke judgment on these false teachers, and he says judgment especially on those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these false teachers do. Verse 12, but these are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters in which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're not, they're, not, they're not embarrassed about their sin, but they're sinning out in open for all to see. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you even at communion or the church's feasts that were taking place. So here was a group that was bold and prideful and arrogant, and they wore their arrogance on their shoulder like it was a badge of honor. They were arrogant and arrogantly sinful. But notice what Peter says, where this pride led them to. It led them to despise authority. And as they begin to despise authority, that begins their downfall. And this makes perfectly good sense. It was Brian Loretz who said this. It says, it is impossible to rid yourself of ignorance while retaining arrogance. It's impossible to rid yourself of ignorance while retaining arrogance. And that makes perfectly good sense. Here's a group of false teachers who are very arrogant and prideful. They thought they already arrived. So they put themselves in a position like we've made it. We don't need any authority. We don't need anybody teaching us anything. We've already arrived. And therefore, notice what it does when we begin to think we've already arrived. It makes our growth stagnant. We no longer change. We no longer are molded by the Holy Spirit because we think we've already made it. And here was these false teachers, which should be a great warning to us all because as you look at Romans 1.18, what do we see? We see that, that the sinful nature of who we are, we, we, we even sometimes begin to suppress the truth. Yes, we know these things, but we suppress it, and we suppress it in different ways, self-justification. We suppress it, we ignore the truth. So what do we need to be, able to, to, to be able to continue to pursue holiness in our lives? We need people in our lives to point out those blind spots that we have. 
We need people to to tell us those times in which we're self-justifying our sinful actions. We need people to hold us accountable and point us back to Jesus. But this, these false teachers, they didn't have anybody in their lives doing that because they despised authority. They despised anybody speaking truth into their lives. They despised biblical authority. They despised apostolic authority. They despised the pastoral authority within their own churches. And it led them to this sense that they thought they were actually God. And yet, how often do we do the same thing? See, the essence of sin in every sin is you're looking at God and you're saying, I want to sit in His seat. Yes, He's the rightful judge that decides what is right and wrong, but... but but God, I want you to, to take, remove yourself from that seat and now I'm going to be the great judge that decides what is right and wrong. I'm going to decide what's best for myself. And what you're literally saying every time you sin is you're saying, God, I, I'm not going to listen to you, but I'm going to be the one who decides what's best for me in this moment. And immediately we begin to see how horrible sin is. Because in your pride, you're thinking you know more than the, the almighty king of kings. And here was a group of false teachers that that literally were telling people that, yes, they don't need authority in their lives. They were the end-all, the be-all. They, in their arrogance, thought they already made it. They were the ones who knew all things, and therefore, any truth spoken to them, they weren't willing to listen to. In fact, it went farther than that. We see in verse 10 through 11 that their pride actually made them begin to blaspheme against the angels. Verse 13, it caused them to, again, be blatant in their sin during the communion as they're probably partaking in sexual sin, as many people believe. Imagine them coming in and doing all these sinful, arrogant things out in the open. And again, this moral line disappeared for them. They crossed over it so often they don't no longer even see it. So notice the order of these false teachers. It began with maybe having a little guilt as they began to cross over that line, but the more they crossed over it, the guilt began to disappear. And the more they crossed over it, not only the guilt that began to disappear, now they're sinning openly for all to see during the daylight hours. And eventually, they begin to invite other people in. And you look at any cultural sin, you'll see the same order. Sometimes they have guilt. They continually sin. The guilt begins to disappear. Then they begin to be more bold in their sin, longing for other people to see them in their sin, and eventually they begin to invite people in. And this is exactly what these false teachers are doing. But how do we keep ourselves from this arrogance? Well, it begins in humility. It begins in our understanding that we are weak individuals in need of the Holy Spirit to transform us, to remind us and convict us of truth. We need other people in our lives to be humble enough to say, you know what, there's blind areas, there's faults in my own life that I'm not able to see, and I need you. I need you to to show them out for me so that I can pursue holiness. And if my goal is to always pursue holiness, if my goal is always to become more like Christ, then I should be willing to invite that feedback in my own life so that there is no blind spots, that I can see the sin Be confronted in that sin, repent of it, and then turn back to Jesus. But these false teachers in their arrogance, they didn't have any of that. Their pride then leads to their lust. 
For notice what we see in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Skip down to verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. What we see is many people believe that here these false teachers were partaking in inviting other people to participate in sexual sin. And as we look at these teachers' lusts, notice the word back in verse 14, that their eyes, their eyes were full of lust. Which makes sense to us. We see the connection between our eyes and our lust. But do we often see the connection between our eyes and our hearts? What our eyes lust for, our hearts begin to desire, and eventually they will begin to fall for. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 6 that the eyes are the lamp of the body. If our eyes are good, our whole body is good. If our eyes are evil, then our whole body is full of darkness. And what he's really saying is the, the powerful nature of our eyes. Again, what our eyes lust for, our hearts will long for and eventually fall for. And we see that throughout the scriptures, do we not? Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? The text is very clear. Here he is on his balcony, and the text says he saw Bathsheba. He saw, and he allowed his eyes to linger there. He longed for it, and eventually his heart longed to have her. You look back at David, and now you go to Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man ever. But his eyes began to lust after women. It bypassed his wisdom and went to his heart. What his eyes lust for, bypassed his mind, longed for his heart to have these women, and it began to be his folly. The wisest man ever began to allow the lustful passions of his own heart to, to circumvent his wisdom, and it moved him into folly. Again, what our eyes long for, our heart begins to desire, and eventually our heart will fall for. So how do we correct ourselves from having this lust of the eyes? We, we got to understand that our eyes are built off of an appetite. What we feed them is what is going to be what eventually our heart longs for. Which there's this grandpa who told this story to his grandson. He began to say there's this, this kind of war raging within all of us. And it's war like these two wolves. There's one wolf who is full of the lust, the sin, the the lack of self-control. And then on the other side, there's this other wolf who is full of holiness and purity and godliness. His grandson thought about these two wolves for a second, and he asked the question, which wolf wins? The grandpa replied, the wolf you feed. The question we ask is, what are we allowing our eyes to feast on? For some of us in this room, we, we've given ourselves too long of a leash when it comes to our own eyes. And what you notice with your eyes is the more they look, the more they long for more. The more you feed your eyes, the greater the appetite becomes. But in the opposite sense, too, you cut off that food, eventually your eyes no longer long for it, and your heart doesn't as well. But sometimes that appetite becomes so great that you need other people in your life to help you kind of quit 
feeding your eyes of what you're looking at. So maybe you're in this room, and yes, you've seen and you've lusted after things you know you shouldn't be lusting after. Well, we're here to help. Don't be ashamed about what you're looking at. Don't be ashamed about the, rather, don't be ashamed about the repentance and calling out for help. But ask for it. So that you can be able to now to train your eyes to, to long for the things of the word. Feed yourself with the holiness of who, the, who, who Jesus is. And as you watch yourself feed on this book, your appetites begin to change. And yet you notice these false teachers. They begin to allow their eyes to feed on these women who were in their group. And as soon as they found themselves giving their eyes full reign, they soon found themselves enslaved to their own lust. And the great tragedy of so much sexual sin or lust of the eyes is it is so selfish in its nature. These false teachers didn't care about their family. They didn't care about the cost that it brought their spouse or their children. They didn't care that it was going to bring a destruction to their reputation. All they wanted for is what they looked after. Their heart longed for it and their heart began to fall for it. And yet how often, how often do we often miss the selfishness of the overwhelming selfishness of the lust of the eyes? And yet the problem was their pride, right? As, as soon as your pride removes God from the equation, what happens next? The imago day begins to disappear. You no longer see people made in the image of God, made wonderfully and fearfully made, but rather you use them as a tool for your own lust. And this is what these false teachers were doing. They're using all these people for their own selfish desires, which leads not only to their lust, but it leads to their greed. It begins in their pride, as Robert Pine would say, the root of all sin is pride. Put them in position to say what is right and wrong, then it leads to the lust of the eyes, and then leads to, to using people for selfish motives, and it leads to their greed. Notice what it says in verses 14 to 16. Here's a group marked by greed. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Peter writes in verse 14. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So notice what Peter is saying in this passage. He's saying these false teachers are walking in the way of Balaam. If you're in the story, the story of Balaam, it comes from Numbers chapter 22 to 24, and, and Balaam was this prophet-slash-divine kind of uh, sorcerer kind of person and there was a man named Balak, not to be confused with Balaam, but Balak was the king of Moab. King of Moab, Balak, he was looking out and he's watching Israel come in on his land. And what he's wanting to do is he's, he's wanting to call on Balaam to give a curse on upon Israel so that they would fall and that his kingdom would be able to rise. So he sends his men to Balaam and Balaam says, well, I'm not doing that because the Lord says you're supposed to bless Israel. Well, the king doesn't take no for an answer. So what the king does now is he sends more princes, and he sends princes with greater honor to persuade Balaam to be able to pronounce this curse upon Israel. Well, they come again with more people, with more money, and Balaam says, no, he can only speak on what the Lord says. 
So far, he's doing everything right. But the problem is that God says that night, uh, if the men come back to you, then you can go out and go with these men. But if you go with these men, you can only speak what I tell you to speak on. Well, Balaam, in his greed and longing for money from this king of Moab, says, that sounds great. And he doesn't wait for the people to come to him, but early in the morning, he goes and finds them. And he goes along with them, but he forgets the part that he's only supposed to speak on what God told him to do. And in fact, because of his greed for money and honor, he's going to speak a curse. So what takes place is a donkey, if you know the story correct, the donkey has to stop him because the angel of the Lord was going to bring judgment on him because he was going to curse Israel and God's children. Moral of the story is that a donkey has greater wisdom than Balaam because Balaam in his greed forgets all that God said and only longs for honor and money. Well, the story goes on as we see Balaam now is still longing for honor and money from from the king of Moab, that when God calls Israel to now destroy Moab, Israel doesn't destroy them all listening to Balaam because Balaam says, hold up, don't kill them all. Well, it then brings a curse to the nation of Israel. So the question we ask is, why does Peter point them to Balaam? He does so for two specific reasons. It's an illustration of these false teachers. Specifically, that the hearers they're going, to be not, they're, they're going to be cursed by these false teachers' so-called wisdom and not helped. Just like Balaam, he brings wisdom to the people of God, but it's a false wisdom which leads to their punishment, their own punishment, but also to Balaam's own judgment as well. So it's a double illustration for these false teachers. He's saying judgment is coming on you specifically, false teachers, and there's a curse coming to anybody who listens to him. It won't go well. See what he's saying there? Greed never leads to anything of holiness. And he says, here's a group of individuals who, yes, say that they're bringing you freedom, these false teachers, but it doesn't bring you freedom. It actually leads to greater enslavement. And this is going to be vastly important for us to understand because they're using a tactic that Christopher Walken calls the noble lie. What is a noble lie? It's trying to persuade somebody into sin by saying it's for their benefit. And notice how these false teachers are saying. What they're saying is, hey, come, come, join us in this freedom, this freedom to lust upon these women. It's, it's for your greater good. Don't, don't allow the religious restraints to constrain you in your desires. And yet what we have to understand is anything that leads us away from Jesus Christ isn't leading us to freedom, but rather it leads us to enslavement and judgment to come. And yet you see this noble lie. This is how Satan works. Remember Eve? He comes to Eve and says, this is for your good. God is holding out on you to know good and evil. It's this noble lie, this thing that this is for your good. If you just eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. And yet where did it lead it led to their enslavement. It led to the curse. And yet you look at our culture. Is not our culture proclaiming the same thing? It's this noble lie. Women's rights. Abortion's okay. 
It's for women's rights, this noble lie. It seems it's for your good, but yet you're killing an innocent baby in the mix. Homosexuality, why would you ever be against it? Why would you be against somebody having love? All love's the same. And yet again, what we have to understand is anything that leads us away from Jesus and His holiness and His commands doesn't lead to greater freedom. It leads to enslavement and judgment to come. Peter's very clear in this passage where that judgment is leading. He tells us, verse 21, speaking of the false teachers specifically, he says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, the question that Peter would ask is not the question to these false teachers. Do you remember when you first sold out? Because for Peter, they were of, not of Jesus ever. Their true fruit showed themselves once again. Here was a group marked by continual pride, a lifestyle marked by lust, lust of the eyes and their greed. And he's saying, you'll know them by your fruit. And this proverb at the end, he's saying, hey, you can, you, you can try to, to, to dress up a pig and wash it out, but what is the pig always going to go back to? It's going to revert to its true nature, going back to the mud. Same thing with the dog. These are wild dogs, not pets. What is the dog going to do? You can try to train your dog not to eat its own vomit, but eventually it's going to prove itself to eat its own vomit. And what he's saying is these false teachers are proving their true selves, that they're not of Jesus. They were never of Jesus. They're leading people astray. And yet this morning as we look at their lust and we look at their pride and we look at their greed, I'm reminded of what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said. He said this, that nothing that we despise in other men is entirely absent from ourselves. And yet what a reality. Yes, sometimes we struggle with our pride and sometimes we struggle with the lust of the eyes and sometimes we struggle with our greed. But what is Peter's solution in all of this? It's Jesus. It's knowledge of, of Jesus. Run to Jesus because he's the only one who can transform your heart. Run to Jesus because he's the only one who can forgive you of the pride and the lust and the greed. And the great news of the gospel is even though we might struggle in these things, He can transform our appetites and point us back to the glory of who He is. The great news of Jesus is that He's grabbed His people and He says, you're my people. I'm going to die for your holiness because He died in our place. He says, now strive after holiness and continually grow in your faith as Peter's main message is. His judgment is coming on these false teachers. Don't, don't follow the noble lie that they're proclaiming. The culture is going to proclaim the noble lie. But he says your true freedom is coming as you give your life in, in all of its totality over to Jesus Christ. God, I'm thankful again for your word. 
that your word does confront us in our pride. No, God, I pray that we would be the people who are poor in spirit, who have a disposition of desperation for you and you alone. God, give us hearts that are hungry after holiness. Give us hearts that are hungry after your glory. God, be with your church. Would you conform and mold our hearts? Those who are struggling with pornography or lust of the eyes, God, I pray that you would give them freedom. I, I, I pray that you would give them the boldness to seek help. And they would find people who would come alongside them and encourage them in their walk. God, I'm thankful for the good news that you washed us white as snow. The yes is we, we, we drink from the hard parts of Scripture. God, would you use these parts to conform our hearts? Let them serve as a warning to us to point us to the great news of the gospel. That the gospel always shines forth. God, be with your people this morning. Bless your church. We pray these things in your son's name.